You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, I don't know how the Apostle Paul did it, and I'm talking about traveling. We just got back from what was only a short two-week vacation, and I'm ever glad to be back. When we pulled into the garage, I realized that what Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz was right. There's no place like home. And the sights and the sounds and the smells of home, you start to long for that after a couple weeks, and two weeks was long enough for me. And I would even gladly take the cold weather and the snow and the freezing temperatures and be home than to be in sunny and 80 and away from home. At home, have you ever noticed that you're never too hot and you're never too cold? Your house is always the right temperature. And if it's not the right temperature, then you turn it up or you turn it down. You don't do that when you're staying with friends and family members. You, you don't adjust the thermostat to your liking. And if it's too hot and too cold at home, you, you don't complain about it. And you can't do that when you're at somebody else's house either. You just either sweat or shiver and you put up with it. And I never realized that my bed was so comfortable. I took that for granted. And it was not until I got back that I realized how comfortable my bed is. And then when you're traveling, your hair always responds differently to other waters. And I don't know what it is, but you can never tame it. If you know, if you have hair, then you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have that blank look on your face and my hair does that when you get someplace else? And it sure does. But then when I got home, the first morning that I was back, I, we made the trip from San Francisco to Sandpoint where we had been staying with family in the San Francisco area. We did that in one day. We left at 7.30 in the morning, traveled through to 11.30 at night. I'm a skinflint and I don't like to spend money on hotels and beds that are not comfortable and hotel rooms that are too hot and too cold and does weird things to my hair with the water. So I would rather just travel through. So we did that, and we pulled into home and got up the next morning after a great night's sleep and what was a comfortable bed and a perfect temperature and had a nice shower and my hair didn't freak out. And then I went downstairs, and it was about 6.30 in the morning, and, and unpacked the van and sorted through my stuff and poured myself a nice cup of coffee, and I took a drink of that, and I was kind of taken aback at first by the taste. Then I realized that's what fresh ground coffee tastes like. I hadn't <laughs> tasted that for two weeks. You can't find a coffee bean in California. Everybody has the pre-done packets, and there's just no place like home. Now, I don't know how the Apostle Paul did it. I was only gone for two weeks. He was gone for years at a time. And when I travel, I have all of the modern conveniences. I get in a vehicle, and I adjust the temperature of my traveling. If it's too hot, I move the little lever. If it's too cold, I move the little lever. As you're going from south to north, you continue to move the little lever farther and farther onto the red part of the dial. And I have a cell phone. If I'm in danger or if I need something, I make a phone call. Paul had no such conveniences. I traveled 3,140 miles and I covered as much territory in two weeks as it would have taken Paul two to three years to do. Now, he would have planted churches all along the way. And just for your knowledge, I didn't plant any churches while I was gone. Paul would have done that. And I don't even have the problem of keeping my foot on the accelerator, friends. We just push a little button and our car travels along at the perfect speed and we sip nice warm coffee and it's plugged into our cigarette lighter. It keeps our coffee warm for as long as we want to drink it. Listen to the radio and relax and just rest the miles away. Paul didn't have any of that. 
Do you know where he stayed the longest out of all of his missionary journeys? Do you remember where he stayed longer than in any other city? It's the city of Ephesus. He stayed there for three years in the city of Ephesus. And his missionary journey will take him, this third one that we've been looking at in the book of Acts, at least before we, we left, we finished Acts chapter 19. And you'll need to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 so that you have that open. And we're going to actually look at the first few verses of Acts chapter 20. Paul didn't have any place to come home to that was home for him in the sense that I use the term home. He had a home city, and of course Paul had friends in every corner of the Roman Empire. And Paul could go to almost any city and find people who would willingly and quickly and graciously put him up for the night. In every city he had friends who would exercise hospitality and they would welcome Paul, but he didn't return from a trip or come home any place to his own bed. He gave all of that up in Acts chapter 13 when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. And from that point forward, Paul had suffered the loss of all things. He had no home. He was a vagabond in every sense of the word. No comfortable bed. No water that didn't make his hair look weird if he had hair. I don't know if Paul did or not. But he had no place to come home to and relax like you and I do returning from a trip. Probably the closest thing on the road that Paul ever had to home was the city of Ephesus. And we've looked at and we finished looking at Paul's stay in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now if you're like me, and I'm assuming that you are, when you get out of any kind of groove or away from anything for one to two or three weeks, you begin to forget everything that is of importance that you've covered. And I know that there were some things that I had to go back and review in the book of Acts. And if I have to do that, when I spend all week studying it, I'm going to assume that we could hit a few of the highlights of Acts chapter 19 just to bring all of us back up to, up to speed on the same page of what we've covered so far. When Paul got to Ephesus... Acts chapter 19, he met that group of disciples of John the Baptist who were still waiting for their Messiah, had heard the ministry and the message of John. Paul evangelized them and baptized them. And then he went into the synagogue and for three months he spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord, teaching and preaching about Jesus. And in that synagogue on his second missionary journey, he had a warm welcome. He was there for one Sabbath and everybody said, Paul, come back, come back. And he was on his way to Jerusalem, so he didn't stay there. But on this third missionary journey, when he gets in Ephesus, after three months, the Jews begin to become hardened by the preaching of the Word that Paul was doing. And they began to speak evil of the way and to blaspheme Paul and to blaspheme Christ. So Paul left the synagogue and he taught in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And during that two-year period of time that Paul was teaching in Ephesus, Luke says that all of Asia heard the Word of the Lord. And the Lord was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. What kind of miracles? healings and exorcisms. And then you remember those seven men. This was in Ephesus that those seven sons of Sceva thought they could do the same thing Paul was doing, casting out demons. So they named over one demon-possessed man the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches and tried to perform that little trick. And they got schooled, sent out of his house naked, wounded, beaten, and they fled. And that spread, that news of that spread all through Ephesus so that people in the church began to realize how serious that sin was. And that had an effect upon the people in the church. Fear fell upon all of them. And they began confessing their magic arts and their involvement in the occult, which had been so much a part of their life when they had been involved in Artemis worship. And they brought all of their books and their scrolls out into the street and burned them. And the Word of God was triumphing and prevailing mightily in Ephesus. And things were happening. It was the most fruitful phase in all of Paul's life. 
No place did he ever go that he saw as much spiritual fruit and blessings as he did in Ephesus. It was always also a very difficult time for him in Ephesus. A lot of opposition. Like Demetrius. Remember Demetrius? He was making coin off of the idol worship in the industry in the temple. And once he realized Paul was a threat because Artemis sales were down and worship at the temple was down because the Word of God was mightily prevailing in Ephesus, Demetrius got together his little group of craftsmen who were also making money from the sale of the idols and they started this little, I think it was intended to be a small ride. It turned out to be far more than I think Demetrius ever envisioned. So much so that eventually the whole city was filled with confusion and the whole theater got filled full of people who shouted out for two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And this riot went on inside of that, tent, inside of that uh, theater and most of the people who came together didn't even know why they were there. Ask them, what have you come to the temple for? They didn't know. They were just caught up in the emotional fervor of the moment. And so after a period of time, the city clerk came out and dismissed the assembly, said, look, what you're doing poses a threat to the city. You need to stop this or we're all going to be in trouble from Rome. These men are innocent and you know it. Go home. So they went home. And before all of this, Paul had made plans to leave Ephesus. And so the end of that riot in Ephesus also marked the end of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And that brings us back to the beginning of verse of chapter 20, the end of chapter 19. Now, you remember all of that? Got all of that in your mind? Paul has made plans to leave Ephesus. He sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him into Macedonia to prepare the way for him. After they leave, the riot broke out. And now Paul, at the beginning of chapter 20, i got to get in the right book. At the beginning of chapter 20, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts, he had given them much exhortation. He came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Now I want you to notice something as Paul's leaving Ephesus and as he's traveling. I want you to notice something that's mentioned twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. The King James and New King James translates it, embraced them. It's not a word for embracing, it's the word for exhorting. When he had exhorted them, and it's mentioned again, when he goes through Macedonia and Achaia, he's giving them much exhortation. The word exhort or exhortation means literally to sort of come alongside of and to offer encouragement. It might be used to describe somebody requesting or entreating or appealing to somebody. I'm exhorting you to... Give me something. That's kind of the idea of it. It's also used to describe encouragement, like somebody is discouraged, and so you give them a little exhortation, sort of a little shot in the arm to encourage them and sort of boost their spirits a little bit. It's also used to describe the act of encouraging somebody to do something. I am exhorting you to be in prayer this week. You could use the word that way. Whenever the Apostle Paul exhorted the disciples, he did so from the Scriptures. That's what he did. Now this is vintage Paul. Here he has just gone through the riot, although he himself was not in the theater. They had drug into the theater Aristarchus and Gaius, Paul's traveling companions. But he was wanting to go into that mix 
and offer a defense and the people wouldn't let him. Remember that? The Asiarchs wouldn't let him. The disciples wouldn't let him. They didn't want Paul to go into the middle of that theater because they knew that would be his, his death warrant, his death certificate. And so they kept him out of that. And after all of this riot, Paul gathers together to the disciples and what does he do with them? He teaches them. He knows he's leaving town. And how does he spend his last minutes with those brethren? Doing what? Exhorting them from the Scriptures. And this is hot on the heels of opposition and hatred. This is exactly what Paul did in in Galatia, Acts chapter 14. You remember after he was stoned at Lystra and left for dead, he went to Derbe, and on the way back through, it says Paul gathered the disciples together, and he had exhorted them and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It was on the heels of his own suffering that he gathers together the Christians and encourages them. Who encouraged Paul? In Acts chapter 16, after being beaten, falsely accused, spending a night in prison, as Paul was preparing to leave Philippi, it says he gathered the disciples together at Lydia's house, and after he had encouraged them, he departed Philippi. Here he's doing it again. After the riot, as he's about ready to leave the city, he gathers together the Christians and he encourages them. All of these believers in Ephesus would have known that they can expect from Demetrius and the craftsmen and all of the other Artemis worshippers the same kind of opposition and hatred and vehemence that the Apostle Paul had experienced. Now, do you think they'd be fearful? I think there'd be a little trepidation there. Paul is leaving. His whole ministry team is leaving. And he's leaving this church behind. And this church in Ephesus has had him there to defend them and to teach them and to pastor them and to be there with them for three years now. They've had Paul right there, and now Paul is sort of cutting the apron strings, and he's leaving hot on the heels of opposition and hatred. And he gathers together the believers, and he exhorts them. That's the selflessness of Paul. If he was stoned, he encouraged somebody else. If he was opposed, he exhorted somebody else. If he was hated, he gathered together the Christians and told them, things that would encourage them and exhort them in the Word. He began his ministry in Ephesus by teaching. He continued his ministry in Ephesus by teaching. And as he leaves Ephesus, what does he do? Cracks open the Scripture and he begins to exhort the saints. Because he's preparing to leave. Look at verse 2. Chapter 1 says that, or verse 1 says, He took, took his leave of them and he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, The districts of Macedonia. Do you remember what cities are in Macedonia? They're on that map that's on the back of your bulletin insert. That's that's on the back this time, I'm relatively sure. It's on the map that's on the back of your bulletin insert. Cities that you're familiar with. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All of those believers in those cities were suffering persecution as well. When Paul went to Philippi, the Jews hated him there. They ran him out of town. So we went to Thessalonica, and they grabbed Jason and brought him down and began to beat Jason. They were looking for Paul. They drove Paul out of town. And when he went to Berea, which was in Macedonia, the Jews from Thessalonica came down to Berea and drove him out of Berea. So here are all of these churches and these Christians through Macedonia who have been suffering persecution and violence, and we know that from the Thessalonian epistles that Paul wrote. And as he goes back through there, he's giving them much exhortation. What did he tell them? You know what I think he told him? It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. I think he told them, it has been granted to you, this is what he told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, to you it has been granted not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for His name's sake. That's the type of exhortation. I would like to encourage you by telling you how much you're going to suffer. 
That's exhortation. And that's what Paul did. Now, at the end of verse 1, we reach a point where we get to write something in the margin of your Bible because there's another book of the New Testament that's written here, and you're going to want to take note of it. Next to the word Macedonia, in chapter 20, verse 1, you want to write the word 2 Corinthians is written. If you're keeping track of that in the margin of your Bible, write that down. Between verse 1 and verse 2, 2 Corinthians is written. And if you're keeping track of the date timeline, uh, as I've suggested that you do at various points, you can write down fall or winter of 57 A.D. 2 Corinthians is written between verse 1 and verse 2 from Macedonia. And I want to remind you of how the whole Corinthian problem unfolded so that you can sort of catch the flow of what Paul's doing during the midst of all of these verses. When Paul started this journey, there were problems in Corinth. Almost from the day Paul left that church, there were problems in Corinth. And by the time Paul got back to Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila were, where Apollos had come from, who had served in Corinth, and they knew the Corinthian believers, Paul heard of some serious problems in Corinth, and so he wrote a letter, the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. That's the letter that's not preserved for us in the New Testament. And Paul sent that letter over there, and that letter was met with and responded to by a letter from the Corinthians. And they had all these questions. What about divorce and remarriage? What about chastity in marriage? What about the marital relationship that exists between a husband and a wife and the physical element of that relationship? They had questions about the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and the resurrection. All of these questions, they sent those back to Paul. And whoever it was that delivered that letter to Paul also said to Paul, and it was somebody from Chloe's household, there are divisions among the church in Corinth. Well, Paul began by sort of dealing with the issues that he had heard about from Chloe's household. And then in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote to me. And he goes on into answering their questions that they had asked Paul. He sent that letter with Timothy. Timothy delivered that letter. This is all going on while Paul's in Ephesus. Timothy delivered that letter to Corinth. And when he came back, he reported to Paul that the situation was worse than they had feared. False teachers had come into the church and they had ravaged Paul's uh, reputation. They were calling him everything but anything that was good. Paul left Ephesus, the ministry in Ephesus. He made a trip to Corinth, a second trip to Corinth. that's not recorded in the book of Acts, but Paul mentions it. And he refers to it as a painful visit because when Paul was in Corinth, somebody opposed him to his face. Some, to his face, some false teacher stood up and they rebuked Paul and the entire church sided with him against Paul. And he found himself on the outskirts of the entire church. That church that he had loved and founded and started and spent 18 months ministering in, they had rejected him wholesale. Now Paul left and he went back to Ephesus and he wrote a third letter, which was a severe letter. It was a scathing letter. And he sent that letter by the hand of Titus. Now that's at the end of chapter 19. He sent that letter by the hand of Titus and he had made arrangements to meet Titus in Troas. Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we came to Troas, which is on his way through to Macedonia, and there was a great effective door for ministry that was opened up to us. But Paul says, I found no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus. He was supposed to meet Titus in Troas. And when he got to Troas on his way to Macedonia, he didn't find Titus. And so Paul left Troas and he went into Macedonia to find Titus. And there he found Titus. And Paul describes that meeting with Titus in 2 Corinthians. And he said, Titus encouraged us by telling us that there had was good news from Corinth. The good news from Corinth was that as a result of that harsh letter that Paul had written in them, and as a result of Titus's ministry in that church, most of the church had repented. Most of the church was now ready for Paul's visit. And when Titus met Paul, likely in Philippi, in Macedonia, Titus reported to Paul how they had been well received, 
people had repented. They're now ready for him to come. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians. That's between verses 1 and verse 2. Now in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he gets to Greece. That's where Corinth is at. Now you see, Paul is rushing through on his way down because Paul wants to get to Corinth to deal with this Corinthian situation. So 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus back in chapter 19. 2 Corinthians between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, the letter to 2 Corinthians was written to prepare the church for Paul's visit. And one of the things that Paul was doing, that we don't learn about this from the book of Acts, but we learn it from 2 Corinthians and Romans, Paul was taking up an offering in the churches as he was traveling through Macedonia and Achaia. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, and somebody came up afterwards and said, why was Paul taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem? Was Jerusalem this church that was just receiving all of this money from the sister churches all over the Roman Empire and sort of stockpiling Wealth, what, why did the church in Jerusalem need money? What's going on here? That's a good question. You know what's going on in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is about as far away in the Roman Empire as you can get from Rome. Do you think the emperor cared about the financial situation in Jerusalem? <laughs> Not a bit. It was a poor area. Do you remember Acts chapter 2? After the church was founded, what the believers did with their possessions? They had all of their possessions in common and they were sharing with everyone as they had need. Then we skip ahead to Acts chapter 4, and we find out that the wealthy believers were bringing all of their houses and lands to the congregation, and they were selling them to provide for the needs for the needy among the congregation. Acts chapter 6, there was this massive welfare ministry, the serving of tables with the widows. Acts chapter 11, from Antioch, they took up an offering and sent it by the hand of Paul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem. Here we are 25 years after Pentecost, and the financial situation in Jerusalem hasn't changed at all. For 25 years, the believers have been sharing their possessions, selling what they have to provide for their needs, and those resources that they were sharing have now dwindled to the point where nobody had anything. And so Paul is collecting an offering as he's traveling through Macedonia and Achaia. Read verse 2. Verse 2 says, When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Verse 3. And there he spent three months. I want you to pause there. Greece is Corinth. Greece is where Corinth is at. That's where Paul was going. He was on his way through and he came to Greece. He was in Corinth. And in Corinth, Paul stayed for three months. Now here you get to insert another New Testament book. You get two of them this morning. Two for the price of one. Most times we do this, I only give you one book of the New Testament that was written. Today you get two. Second Corinthians in 57, fall and winter of 57, was written between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 3 where it says three months from Greece, that is from Corinth, the book of Romans was written. That's where Paul wrote Romans. So you want to write down Romans. And if you're keeping track of the timeline, this would be spring of 58 when Paul wrote that. Now I want to tie in the book of Romans for a second. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 1. It's probably just a couple of pages. Keep your finger at Acts 19 because we're going to be back there. I want you to look at a couple of verses in the book of Romans that sort of tie all of these activities together. Do you remember back in chapter 19 when it says Paul decided it was time to leave Ephesus? And so this is before the riot. And so it says that he determined that he was going to go back to Jerusalem having passed through Macedonia and Achaia because he was picking up the offering. Then he was going back to Jerusalem. And after this, Paul said, I must see Rome. You remember that? I'm on my way to Rome. Verse 8 of chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness how to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. 
that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's face, both faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul says, I've been planning to come for a long time. And so here he is, just probably a couple months after making this plan, and after a couple months after saying, I have to see Rome, Paul says, I'm going to write an advance letter, so to speak. So he sends that off to Rome to tell them, I've wanted to come, I've been prevented from coming, but now I'm coming. Flip over to chapter 15 of the book of Romans. Chapter 15, and look at verse 22. Paul mentions it again before he closes. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, I hope to see you in passing, and so to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that is Macedonia and Greece, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased, uh, sorry, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way to you by, to, of you to Spain. For I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now back to Acts chapter 19. You see that mention of the offering? The saints in Achaia, Macedonia, have been pleased to give this offering to the churches. And once Paul says, I put my seal on that, once I have delivered that gift to Jerusalem, I'm off to Rome. So he sends the book of Romans from Corinth. Now so far you've seen Paul write six letters in the book of Acts that you've taken note of. Galatians was written after the first missionary journey between 14 and 15, those two chapters. Then on the second missionary journey from Corinth, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and a few months later wrote 2 Thessalonians. Then he left there on the third missionary journey. Now coming through Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians. Then he goes up through Macedonia and he writes 2 Corinthians. And when he finally gets to Corinth, he writes the book of Romans. Six books that you've seen so far that you've kind of plugged into that timeline. Now, why did Paul, why was Paul taking up an offering for the saints? It was because of the Gentiles' love for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And one of the expressions, one of the things that is expressed, I should say, in giving is the unity of spirit and the unity of oneness amongst believers. Uh, if I have the means in my possession to give and help somebody else, and that individual is a Christian who maybe is in a different area of the world or has a different skin color or a different ethnic background, my expression of Christian charity to my brother in Christ demonstrates my love for him and my oneness. And Paul encouraged all of the believers everywhere he went, remember the poor, and now he has the opportunity to take up offerings from amongst Gentile churches and give them to the needy Jewish brethren. It was an expression of love, an expression of unity, an expression of gratitude, which is why he says in Romans, the Gentiles have shared spiritual things with their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. Now it's time for them also to contribute material things to their brethren as well. And so they gave gifts and offerings to the believers in Jerusalem as an expression of that love. Look down at verse 4. Verse 3, sorry. He spent three months in Greece, where he wrote Romans, and then it says, a plot was formed against him by the Jews 
Now, I wish Luke could give us a little bit more detail than he does there because I think that would make for some fascinating reading. A plot was formed against him by the Jews in Greece, in Corinth. Some people conspired together to take Paul's life. How do I know they wanted to take his life? Well, Paul switches his travel plans. Look at the end of verse 3. He was about to set sail for Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. Paul's intention, this is the spring of 58, Paul's intention is to sail back to Jerusalem, to be in Jerusalem for Passover. And he gets down, his intention is to sail for Syria, which is where Jerusalem is, and he gets down to the port, and he finds out a plot has been hatched against him by the Jews. Now, why did they want him dead, the Jews in Corinth? This is Paul's third time in Corinth. Do you remember what Paul did the first time he was in Corinth? He went into the synagogue and he led the synagogue leader, Crispus, to the Lord. Remember that? Back in Acts chapter 18. Led Crispus to the Lord. Well, Crispus was replaced by Sosthenes. And before Paul left Corinth, he led Sosthenes to the Lord. So Paul's converted two of their synagogue leaders. On top of that, Paul planted a church right next door to the synagogue. You remember that? Right next door to the synagogue. You have Paul's church. Well, not Paul's church, but I mean the church that Paul founded, and then the synagogue right next door to it. And then after that, the Jews brought a legal case against Paul before Gaius, and Gaius dismissed it out of hand. I don't want anything to do with the stuff regarding your law. Get out of here. So they won a legal victory. In Corinth, the Jews had suffered defeat after defeat after defeat at the hands of Paul. They had tried to blaspheme him. They had tried to attack him. They had tried to beat Sosthenes as a lesson to Paul. They had tried legal means to get Paul convicted and thrown out of Corinth. Everything that they tried had failed against the Apostle Paul. And now he's back on their turf, and what do they want to do? They can't get him legally. They've tried blaspheming him. They can't discourage the man. There's only one thing left to do. What is it? Kill him. They're going to kill him. So they hatch a plot. The plot has something to do with sailing. Paul's going to get on a ship to sail to Syria. Now, if this is in the springtime, there would be a whole bunch of Jews that would be sailing on board that ship back to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Do you think the Apostle Paul could keep his mouth shut on board a ship with a captive audience of about two to 300 Jews? You think he could do that? Do you think it would be easy to kill Paul out in the middle of the sea on board a ship? You think that would be easy? If Paul steps onto that boat, he's a dead man walking. And he knows that. They'll kill him, they'll throw him overboard, and there'll be no more Paul. He wanted to sail back to Syria. But he knows better than to get on board a ship with a bunch of hostile Jews headed back to celebrate Passover. Because he's going to have a captive audience there, and he's going to say, hey, you're going back to celebrate the Passover. Let me tell you about the Passover lamb. And he's going to give him a 12-day sermon. You think he preached long in Troas, and that kid fell out of the window and preached till midnight? Wait till he has you locked on board a ship. He's going to pull your ear all night long. And they would have killed him. So Paul switches plans and he takes a land route back through Macedonia, retracing his steps, and he avoids the whole plot. I want you to notice a couple things about Paul here in this, and how the Lord providentially guided his steps. Do you notice that our plans are not always the Lord's plans? What was Paul's plan? He wanted to be back in Jerusalem for Passover and he wanted to take a ship. The Lord said, no, I want you going the land route. And so he allowed a plot to be hatched by the Jews. They were going to kill Paul, and it redirected Paul's steps. Friends, this is the mark of a mature Christian. The ability to look at your life situation and where you're at, and to make plans accordingly, and to plan things, and even to plan your steps, but to always trust that it is the Lord who providentially guides your steps. Paul made plans, but when that plot was hatched against him, he said, I'll go another way. 
And do you notice also how Paul applied wisdom to his situation for his own protection? Do you think Paul feared death? Do you think he feared suffering? Do you think he feared those Jews on board that ship? I don't think he did. He was bold. He was courageous. He was outgoing. I believe that the day of my death is as fixed as the stars in the heavens. And there is nothing that can alter that. As the psalmist has said, Psalm 139, verse 16, all of the days that were ordained for me, for me, were written in his book before I had yet one of them. Before I had ever lived 24 hours on this earth. All of my days, both the content and the number of them and the length of them were written in his book. And that can't be changed. I cannot alter the day of my death. There is nothing I can do to prevent it from happening. There is nothing I can do to hasten it. And there is nothing I can do to delay it. But listen, I buckle my seatbelt and I lock my doors at night and I stay in my lane when I'm driving. And I pay attention. And it's not because I'm afraid of dying, friends. I don't fear death. I know that that day is marked out for me and I can't change that. And it's going to come and I'm going to die right on schedule. I know that. But I'm not a fool. And I know that if somebody were after me trying to kill me, I would go to great lengths to avoid that person. That's what Paul does. That's not fear. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. It's not that Paul's afraid of them. He just knows that wisdom requires that he take a different course. So he goes up through Macedonia, verse 5 and verse 6. Or verse 4, I want you to look at his traveling companions. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Notice that list of names. Now, whenever you study Scripture, you should always be a stickler for details and ask yourself, why is that detail there? Sometimes the detail is inconsequential. It's just there to fill in the story. Other times the detail is significant. And i got to ask myself, why does Luke tell me that all of these men are traveling with Paul? Why is that significant? Why does he mention them? Some of those names are familiar to us, like Timothy. We're familiar with Timothy. We're familiar with Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions. They were the two that were drug into the theater down in Ephesus. They're now leaving with Paul. And they have been with Paul all the way through to Corinth and on his return trip. Why does Luke mention those? There's four names there that you might not be as familiar with. Like, look at those. Sopater of Berea. Secundus, Tychicus, Trophimus, those are men that are mentioned other words, other places in the New Testament. But why does Luke include them here? I think the clue to it rests not in their name, but in the designation of the place they're from. Do you notice that Luke not only mentions the name, but he gives where they're from? Thessalonica, Berea, Asia, Derby. What were those areas? Those were the areas that Paul was traveling through taking up the offering. Now, in those days, when people sent large sums of money with other people, they usually sent a delegate. And it would have been customary for the churches if we were a New Testament church, say, in Derby, and we took up an offering for the saints in Jerusalem, and we were going to give that to the Apostle Paul to take, we would grab a delegate. We would say, well, we're going to take one of our trustworthy men, maybe a deacon or an elder, and we're going to send him along with you. But why would they do that? It's not because they don't trust Paul. Listen, it does two things. It is additional protection. You think Paul carried that offering around in his wallet? Oh, sure, I'll just put the check in there. They didn't do that. You think he had funds transferred, just wired over to Jerusalem? They didn't do that. He's taking up offerings from many churches, many of them wealthy churches. They're giving, Paul says, out of their abundance, and in most cases, so generously. And they're giving real cash. And Paul is being entrusted with this real cash. Now, if it's just Paul and Timothy, look, that's fish in a barrel. 
And the churches knew that. And these added men would be protection for the money. But it would also do something else. It would add a level of accountability. Nobody could accuse the Apostle Paul of financial wrongdoing when there are all these other witnesses, these seven other men who were traveling with Paul, not only protecting the money, but overseeing what happened to it. Now, Paul, I think, does this, and they did this for Paul's own protection. They'd accused him in Thessalonica, and they'd accused him in Corinth of being corrupt. They said, he's only after your money. He comes to town, he takes up his offering, and he's gone with it. That's what the false teachers were saying about Paul. That's what the Jews were saying about Paul. He only wants your money. Every time he shows up, he takes an offering and he takes off. I mean, figure it out. What do you think he's after? He's after your money. Well, he's got all of these reputable men who are traveling with him who can testify when they get to Jerusalem, every coin that was given was delivered to the saints in Jerusalem. Protection and accountability. That's why those seven men are there. There's somebody else that's joined the crowd. He knows who it is. He's not mentioned by name. Verse 5 and verse 6. Somebody else is with Paul now. Do you see who it is? But these had gone ahead of us. Us? Who else is with Paul now? Dr. Luke. The writer is now with Paul again. He hasn't been with Paul for quite a while. When did we leave Dr. Luke off? Do you remember there was another point where Dr. Luke joined the party and then he left the party? He joined Paul's traveling companions until they get to Philippi and then all of a sudden Luke is not present. And they go all the way through the rest of the second missionary journey. They start the third missionary journey, three years in Ephesus, traveling back. And when they get to Philippi, there's Dr. Luke again. He's back with us. Us. They went ahead of us and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. So Luke has joined the fray now. Verses 1 through 6 sort of form an introduction to the rest of Paul's missionary journey because it's all going to be about his trip back now. You see, he's reached the halfway point. And I'll give you this. He's traveling a lot faster coming home than he was going there. It took us three days to get down to California. Not really in any hurry. It took me 16 hours to get back. I was ready to come home. That's what Paul's doing. I mean, he's hitting these places and just landing long enough to deliver messages, and he's cruising on. And when he goes back through in chapter 20, he doesn't even stop in Ephesus. He calls the elders to a foreign city so he could greet them there and not be tied down with the church. I mean, he's plowing through on his way back to Jerusalem. Now, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, friends. Listen, it's not the most gripping passage of Scripture in all the New Testament. I know that. He traveled there. He went here. He did this. He met these people who were with him and all of that. But these are some essential details that Luke is giving to us because they sort of lay a groundwork. They set the court. The rest of chapter 20 and some things in chapter 21. And these people will play a significant part later on. Do you realize that one of those seven men that Luke just mentioned is the reason that Paul is arrested in Jerusalem? And Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and his trip all the way back to Rome to the end of the book of Acts is because of one of those men that he just mentioned. He just introduces it to us now. And we'll look next week and see how Paul continued on his way back to Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your word for what it teaches us, for the principles that we can learn from it. We thank you for its sanctifying power, and we ask that you would give to us that tenacity to persevere in the face of danger and discouragement, that you would give to us a giving and caring and gracious heart that is willing to encourage others, even while we are in the midst of our own difficulties and discouragements. We thank you that your word is able to do that, your spirit is able to do that. We thank you, God of grace and glory, for this time that we've had this morning in your word. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.